You are now listening to the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. As always, I am your host, Daniel Lee, or photos by DLEE. So this week we'll be discussing a, like a short comparison between the video game industry and the photography industry and what the photography industry can learn from the video game industry. This is sort of a topic I've been wanting to do for a while, mainly because I'm really into my gaming as well as it does sort of relate in a sense when you think about it. They are similar in ways and also Sony, you know, they do make um, video games in terms of consoles and their first party development. So there is sort of that overlap there, which I will discuss. In terms of personal updates, I have been working from home pretty much every day now. So uh, going out to shoot is impossible here. We still have that a minimum $1,000 fine if we are caught, you know, going out doing non-essential stuff like groceries and all that. So that sort of affected my outdoor shooting, but I have got back more into my product photography again, which I'm going to be updating in the personal blog post. So you'll be able to see that. Um, if you follow me on social media, all those photos, you know, different styles of product shots, mainly like trying to go for the more professional look. I've been doing a lot more. I have ordered one piece of new gear and I've got a new piece of gear. So I may have mentioned previously, I was looking at getting a new monitor. That monitor I finally got in the past fortnight and it's amazing. So for those interested, I got the LG 27 GL850. This is a 1440p 144 hertz monitor that is G-Sync compatible. It has a free sync module, but um, you know, it's actually not a G-Sync, you know, physical hardware module in there. It's actually just a FreeSync module that is compatible with G-Sync. Now, some may hear that and think, you know, for photography terms, why would I need a 144 hertz monitor? Now, I use my monitor for both gaming and for my editing. So that, you know, having 144 hertz with G-Sync means when I play games, my GPU, whatever it's outputting. So say it's one game, it's putting out 80 FPS. The next game, it's 40 FPS. The monitor will match that no matter what I'm getting. So it will always be super smooth. So that helps a lot for gaming and sort of future proofs me as well for when I do eventually upgrade my GPU and can put out higher frame rates. In terms of colors, this one is 135% sRGB and 98% of DCI-P3 or 3P, I think it is, which is more of a cinema standard of color, but it's very similar in size to Adobe RGB. So Having that much larger color gamut is something new to me. As soon as I got this monitor, I calibrated it and it's like beautiful. Like I can see the difference straight away. One thing I was worried about was that I wouldn't be able to see any difference in terms of general use. I knew for gaming it would be night and day difference, which it is. But for normal photo editing, web browsing, all that, I didn't think I'd see much of a difference, but I see a massive difference. To give some perspective on it, the last monitor I had was from 2013. That was an Asus uh, uh, PG278Q, oh sorry, PB278Q. It was a 1440p monitor, 100% sRGB, but it's quite old in terms of panels now. And you can definitely see the difference in the upgrade of this new LG model. Editing is so much more fun again. And because of that, another editing related thing, I also got ordered a Wacom Intuos, I guess pronounced, small tablet to help with my editing. With all the product photography I've been doing and often do, I have to do a lot of touch-ups and, you know, I utilize brushes in Photoshop a lot for outlining objects and, you know, especially with um, 
object selection when I adjust it using a quick mask. So because of that, having the tablet will make my editing a lot, lot easier and a lot more precise and probably end up saving me a lot of time in the long run. So that one's been ordered, haven't received it yet. Should get it in the next few days. So in the next episode, I will update everyone on how I'm liking it and if I sort of recommend it as a product. Next, we will be discussing some updates in the camera industry. The first of which is that Tamron has officially announced their 70 to 100 an 80mm f2.8 telephoto lens. So this one should be shipping in mid-May for $1,199. From what I had a quick look um, for Australian stores, the cheapest one I could see I think was around $2,200 or $2,400 AUD. And that was from Digital Camera Warehouse, which is, you know, a lot higher than we should be paying. We should technically only be paying around $1,800. If you're wondering how I got that figure, I did mention in a previous episode, about you know pricing differences and how it should be calculated but just a brief little few things about this lens um size and weight wise it's only 810 grams which isn't light but for a 70 to pretty much 180 200 sort of thing it is really great you know an f2.8 aperture another good thing a lot of earlier reviews have stated it's sort of as good and as sharp as the sony 70 to 200 f2.8 gm lens which is you know a huge thing considering this is like half the price of it or even a third of the cost of it. In terms of buying this lens, you know, I don't really shoot much that would require a telephoto lens. If I was to get one, I still think it would probably be the 135GM. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I don't need anything in that real focal range right now for what I shoot. So it's not something I will possibly, personally be getting anytime soon. If people do want to get it, I, you know, it's going to sell out like crazy, just like the 28 to 75. So it's probably a good thing to pre-order it and get it sooner than later they don't usually go on sale that much you might save like 100 or so um you know when there's a sale but depends on how much you want to wait for that and how bad your guess is the next piece of news which is very very sort of big to me and makes me happy to say is Flickr has finally fixed explore now supposedly this happened quite some time ago when i checked the blog post but in saying that i only noticed it on the weekend so on good friday you know for us it was Good Friday for us, but I'm sure when they sent it out by US time it was still Thursday. I had an email from Flickr stating that they had now fixed Explore. So pretty much I've detailed it a bit more on TPE on the website, but how it works is in their blog post, they pretty much mentioned that they had um, moved over to Amazon Web Services as of March 19th. So now due to this, Explore had received an upgrade. So what they did is they fixed the algorithm changed a few things and now you'll find the photos are much better quality so it's easy to say that and whether it's actually a true thing i've over the past like three four days i've been monitoring explore scrolling through the whole thing i can honestly say it's so so much better everything is actually more photography orientated anyone who did um look through explore daily would notice there was some kind of weird stuff like there'll be the same bus photos pretty much every day or very similar few photos from the same person that's been uploaded there was these weird kind of, I don't know what they were, like characters of people or mannequin kind of looking thing in sort of, I don't know what you want to say, what they were doing, but I won't say, but they were in there pretty much every day. So there's a lot of weird stuff that was in there, which, you know, shouldn't be if it is a photography orientated site, which is now gone. So pretty much if you do get your photo and explore, I feel like it's a big thing again, because it is purely photography related now. And there's a lot of really good images in there so it's actually something like a small achievement to be able to say you know i got it in there you know 
I guess we'll monitor it day by day, week by week, and see if it does continue to improve and the quality of images do improve. But, you know, only time will tell. But in the short term, these past few days, it definitely has improved and definitely worth checking out. So if you're not on the Flickr platform, it's a good time to actually jump on the bandwagon, sign up for a free account just to see what it's like and see how you do on there. Now we are on to our main topic. So as mentioned earlier, it's pretty much a very small comparison of the gaming versus photography industry. What, you know, the photography industry can learn and what they have learned already from the gaming industry. Maybe wondering why I compare it to that. Gaming is one of my, you know, favorite hobbies outside of photography. And also the gaming industry is huge. Like I got told at uni and economics that um, the movies and music industry combined still doesn't make as much as the video game industry. And I think that will just only increase more and more. Stuff like, you know, people pushing for esports to be part of the Olympics, which I agree. You know, if that did make it, that would make gaming even more bigger. And, you know, that will only increase their revenue even more. So it's a good comparison to make. And I think once I, you know, discuss this, there are some areas that the photography industry could definitely learn and benefit from, from copying. So the first point I have is sort of third-party support sales systems. Now, what I mean for this is in terms, we'll look at video games first, then we'll talk about the photography retrospect sort of thing. So with gaming, you obviously have your people making your consoles. So Sony, Microsoft, you know, they make the consoles and Nintendo, sorry. And then you have first-party titles, which are made directly by those manufacturers. So Nintendo games such as Animal Crossing, which I'm still addicted to. You know, Sony have their first-party titles like Spider-Man. And then you have your third-party titles from other developers like your GTA, Assassin's Creed, all that kind of stuff. Now, generally, these games do come out on all platforms because obviously just like a lens, the more platforms on, the more people they can sell to, the more money they make. But occasionally, you do have games that are exclusive or quite often even though they're by third parties, they're still exclusive to that title. Now, for example, um, Spider-Man on PlayStation 4. Although, you know, this is a game that obviously would appeal to everyone, uh, the rights to Spider-Man are owned by Sony. So they had listed Insomniac Games to make this game exclusively for PS4. This game done so well that Sony ended up buying out that studio. So now they're a Sony exclusive developer. So another example would be um, when Microsoft had paid Rockstar Games to not only, or Take-Two, sorry, the main publisher, to not only make this game on both platforms rather than a Sony exclusive, but also to have Time DLC, which was only available on Microsoft for one year. Now, when you look at why this is sort of important and how it could work in terms of, you know, translating over to the photography industry, you'll find that a lot of, out of the big three, Canon and Nikon really do fight third parties. So what we mean by that is, they technically, when Tamron, Sigma, and that Takina, you know, an older one, have traditionally made lenses, they've had to reverse engineer the lenses. So Canon and Nikon don't actually share their AF algorithms with these third parties. They actually, you know, Sigma would have to reverse engineer it, figure out how it works and do everything from there. Because of this, it makes it a lot harder for them to get the AF right. So people remember back in the EX lens days, you know, like the 5D Mark II, 5D Mark III era. There was a thing called the Sigma Lottery. What it pretty much was that anyone that bought a Sigma lens was playing the lottery on whether they get a good lens or a bad lens. If you got a good one that worked out of the box, um, you know, it was amazing. But whereas if you got a bad one, it was a really bad one, like broken AF motors, you know, it wouldn't focus regardless of what, whether in live view or normal sort of um, through the viewfinder. 
This is all the kind of stuff that we had to sort of go through back when they were reverse engineering. Obviously, quality control probably did play a factor in terms of this as well, which improved probably with the art range and a lot of Tamron's SP lenses as well. But, you know, there definitely was an issue back then. And, you know, reverse engineering, as long as that's going to happen, there is going to be an issue, which will probably arise again in terms of RF lenses and Nikon Z mount, because from what I know and what I've read, they're not sharing the algorithm. So Sigma will have to sort of reverse engineer it. Despite being mirrorless and you don't have as much of an issue because the lack of the mirror and lack of sort of um, language it needs to speak between the lens and the body, there will still be an issue. Because if you look at some, say, third-party Sony lenses, even though, you know, I, I believe Samyang still um, get to use Sony's AF algorithm, they're not the best due to that motor, but I guess we'll see what happens over time. Then speaking of Sony, they, from what I know, do share their algorithm with um, both with Sigma with Tamron, I'm not sure, I believe with Samyang, but I can't say for certain. This does make a big difference because the AF performance will be much better. So even though you're buying a third-party lens, you'll get, you know, almost first-party AF performance. I know when I had the Sigma 35 F1.4 in E-mount, like native E-mount, that lens worked really well in terms of AF. I barely seen any difference in terms of stills for autofocus. I can't say much for video because I don't shoot video, but for stills-wise, definitely like it really made a difference them having that AF algorithm rather than having to you know reverse engineer it so as mentioned pretty much in gaming third-party developers are seen as an asset and not sort of as much as competition you know they bring those sales to these consoles because if you think about it, Sony PS4 Xbox One you cannot use the software that these third parties make without those consoles so it's the same if for example Sony uh, Sigma don't make a body forget about their Quattro or if Tamron don't make a body, the only way you can use their lenses is by buying like a Sony or a Canon or a Nikon body. So the developers or the manufacturer, camera manufacturer here, still makes money regardless of the lens sold. So it would be good to see them actually treat third parties like a sort of partner and an asset rather than something as pure competition. Obviously, in terms of lens sales, it always will be competition, but I'm sure there's a way they can make a deal to be able to work together and actually create different lenses in partnership rather than always sort of fighting each other. Because in the end of the day, as consumers, we benefit, we'll have more lens options. And not only just more lens options, we'll have better lens options as well because of this. Now, a good example of a manufacturer working with a third party in terms of camera gear anyway, Sony and Tamron. So if you look at the Tamron 28 to 75, that lens is hugely popular. You know, it's a really great image quality, great focal range for a really good affordable price. Now, in all, from all honesty, from what I know, since 2018 or as of 2018, Sony do own a 12% sharehold of Tamron. So this could explain why they're more open to, you know, sharing their algorithm with Tamron and working in partnership with them. But at the same time, they have shared it with Sigma from what I know. So that may just be out the window. Sony are sort of taking the video game approach, which to be honest, I think has helped them a lot because a lot of, not everyone can afford first party glass or can justify using, you know, spending that much money on first party glass. So because of that, a good method of, you know, working with the third parties is you're inviting more people to buy your bodies, especially if your bodies are higher priced compared to your lenses or to, compared to other competitors, you're still going to make a decent profit off of those bodies. It would be good to see, you know, Canon try and take a similar approach or Nikon and work with a third party like Sigma or something. Um, there's not many third parties they could potentially work with in that sense because when you think about it, Sigma have their L-mount alliance now with Zeiss and Panasonic, so that might interfere with that. 
Tamron seemed to be working, you know, with Sony quite closely. So Nikon and Canon may have sort of missed the boat on that one. And sort of, you know, the ships already set sail. That may not be an option for them. I know back, I think it was around 2015, Canon did try to buy Sigma, but they were rejected because Sigma is sort of like a small company, small family company. They didn't want to sell, which, you know, is a good thing as well. But can you imagine if they, Canon did buy them, they probably bring exclusive lenses just to Canon and not Nikon, you know, so it would be interesting. Either way, they'd make money from the lens sales, as I mentioned before, but it would be sort of a different game in a different industry if that did had happen, did happen. <clears throat> So my next point about why, you know, as a, or as a comparison is develop announcements do create excitement. So once again, in terms of video games, we usually get an announcement of a new console or we know it's going to happen years and years before. So there's always someone that leaks something. And with video games, you do have developer kits go out. So this is pretty much like a bare bones PC console kind of thing that goes out to developers so they know what the specs of these consoles are going to be so they can start developing games for launch titles and that. You'll always get leaked pictures, leaked info of this. The same with cameras. So from what I've, you know, what the rumor sites anyway say all the time, which seem to be fairly true, that Canon, Nikon, Sony always give select photographers an example or a copy of their body to go out and test to see what it's like. We often get leaks because of this. Like I think with the 60 Mark II, there was a few leaks from raw files from the new camera. So that's how people knew the dynamic range would be quite low before the camera even released this kind of stuff you know doesn't really hurt um to know for example if we look at a product like the canon eos r and its touch bar the touch bar wasn't that well received by most people if this for example was known prior like when they first started working on it a few years prior where they could have still changed it and teased like a touch bar and everyone hated it even though most people hated it in use not so much in theory if people did mention you know we want the joystick we don't want this that could potentially shape the product and how it's made. So can you imagine, you know, Canon had teased this touch bar, everyone said, hate it, hate it. So then they actually went back and added the joystick instead. That could have got rid of a lot of people's complaints about that touch bar and it could have boosted the sales slightly. It also gives us an advantage as well. The reason this is, if, for example, you know, Canon wanna, or Canon, Sony, whoever wanna include a new feature on their camera, but it's getting, they tease it, announce it, this is gonna be a new feature of our upcoming unreleased body you know people everyone complains about it i hate it do not put it in do not put it in we want to buy it this gives not only the developer an indication that you know if we include this we're wasting our time wasting our r&d people won't buy it but it also lets us know if they're listening because if we all complain about it but it still gets included it shows that they weren't listening and that you know it's something that we need to take into consideration when we're picking a brand or if we're looking at switching brands and this leads into my sort of final point that people will buy regardless of new models so you may think stuff like development announcements could hurt sales um you'll find there's different type of consumers or you know different type of photographers you got some people like myself who have quite bad gas and need to buy the items as soon as they're released i laugh because you know it's honestly true you got others that will wait six to twelve months to see if the price drops or if there's any issues like you know um, for example the 1dx recently had issues firmware issues seem to be fixed in terms of focusing with their 7200 flickering issues with their display on the 1dx mark III. nikon have had like pretty much everybody there's been some issues ibis with their mirrorless bodies uh you know leaking oil stains on one of their sensors i think it was a d810 or d610 so they've had pretty much a huge amount of issues there's been so many of these so you know waiting that six months the price does drop 
as well as you get to wait for these issues. Um, it's not definitely not a bad thing. And then you got the people that will just sort of only upgrade every five to ten years when either A, their body currently using has died, or you know, B, that they're pretty much outlasted that body and their skills are now being held back by the technical limitations of that body. So if we take all that into consideration, you also have people that will just buy regardless. I like I'm sure anyone's been in a camera store and sort of overheard salespeople talking to, you know, just your average consumer in there asking about which body to get. I remember I was in one local store here, did JB Hi-Fi, and the salesperson, they didn't have a clue like the difference between lenses. They were recommending EFS lenses to use on the full frame body. And with Canon, that technically doesn't work. You're going to damage your sensor. So one of my friends who worked there had to like pull them aside and be like, hey, hey, you know, you can't do that. That's not actually possible. You're telling the customer the wrong thing. And you can hear a lot of cringeworthy stuff like that when you're in the stores. But a lot of people will just go in, put their full trust in the salespeople and go with whatever recommendations they make. These people would not do their research, you know, like, oh, wait, the newest version of this is coming out in two months time and it's going to have four stops more dynamic range. They probably wouldn't even care about the dynamic range. They shoot it in order. They take their photos. They look better than their phone. They're happy. You know, these type of people will still buy regardless. And even many people, you know, because photography industry has such a great secondhand market, will just buy the gear and then just use it for that few months, sell it secondhand and upgrade when the new stuff comes out. So I personally don't think it would affect sales a great deal. There will, of course, be people who will hold out and wait. But even, you know, if there's a development announcement, but even now without development announcement, just with rumors, people sell their gear based off rumors and wait months to, you know, to see if that stuff comes out just be based off rumors. So having development announcements wouldn't hurt it in that sense. It would probably, you know, at the same, at the worst, maybe tiny bit hurt it, but it'll probably just stay the same, if anything, maybe even improve sales in that sense, because the secondhand market would, you know, benefit more, but firsthand, maybe not pretty much to look at it in, you know, terms of um, secondhand sales as well for video games. Video games do have a lot of secondhand sales. With physical copies, you know, becoming less and less prominent, digital becoming more of a thing, that'll obviously change, which would never be the same for the photography industry. But that's something to do keep in mind in regards to that. I think um, both Canon and Nikon could learn a lot from the video game industry and what they do and how they practice. I think it's fair to say that Sony themselves has learned this, you know, and really copied what they've done with the PlayStation 4 in terms of working with third parties. And that's sort of, I wouldn't, I'd definitely say it has helped them in terms of sales. Like they've captured, you know, gained a lot of traction in the past, you know, five to six years with their business model. And I think, you know, you can't say it's not working regardless of if you diehard Canon Nikon fan or anything, you have to admit they are doing well. So it would be interesting to see how things go over the next, you know, two to three years or even three to five years if Canon and Nikon do change their approach and end up sort of partnering up with a third-party developer, if we see someone new, like I know Takina have started releasing new mirrorless lenses again. So if we see them play a bigger part or another third-party comes out and starts to really take things seriously. So this pretty much concludes the episode on, you know, my brief comparison of video game industry and the photography industry. If you did enjoy this, you can make sure to subscribe. Uh, next week, in the next fortnight, I'll have another episode out what that episode will be about. I do not know, so you will not find out until then. Um, I'll be happy to share my update on the Wacom Intuos tablet once I do get it. Hopefully, you know, I get it in a few days if the express shipping doesn't have any delays due to, you know, coronavirus. But once I do get that, I'll be sure to update and maybe even do a written review if I have sort of enough to say about it. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and our social links will be posted in the show notes.